0: This is the first story in the Emily Castle's mystery series. It's called Three Sisters. The South London sky exploded with a thousand deaths that night. Emily looked up. Tiny coloured lights hung in the blackness, like midget gems suspended mid-rinse in a toddler's open mouth. She was on her way to the bonfire party at the big house at the end of the street in Brixton where she lived, at the invitation of the new owner whom she had never met. Emily should have been used to the fireworks at her age because there had always been fireworks on bonfire night for as long as she could remember. The fireworks now, as much a celebration of Diwali, the Hindu festival of light, and Halloween, the American festival of gore and dressing up, as Guy Fawkes' night, When people in England remembered the day back in 1605, when a plot had been foiled which, had it been successful, would have blown up the Houses of Parliament, with King James I and the future Queen Elizabeth inside it. But tonight, each explosion startled Emily slightly, as if it was the sound of a gunshot, danger and the sizzling sausage smell of blackening flesh that hung in the autumn air made her think of her dog Jessie, who had died the week before. The dog had not been barbecued. She died peacefully after a long and happy life, but she had very much enjoyed eating sausages. Emily was carrying a tray of homemade cheesy potato bake, a wholesome, portable dish that usually went down well at parties, and a bottle of rosé wine ordinarily she wouldn't have gone ordinarily she would have been at home with Jessie just in case the dog was disturbed by the noise of the fireworks but those days were gone and when the handwritten invitation had been slipped through her letterbox well she'd interpreted it as a sign that she should start a new life and find some new friends how was she to know she was making an appointment not just with a new life but with death Halloween had fallen this year on the weekend before bonfire night and, as usual, many people were out celebrating both events. Local children wandered the streets in ugly masks. At least, she hoped they were masks. For a moment or two, Emily felt uneasy. What if this invitation was some sort of trick? What if she got to the big house at the end of the street and the place was dark and deserted? But then she seemed to feel the presence of her dog Jessie walking beside her for a few paces, and she felt reassured. As she got closer to the house, she saw it wasn't deserted. First she heard the music, and then she saw the coloured lights strung up in the garden. And finally she heard the happy buzz of conversation from people gathered in the garden. The guests were easily distinguishable from their hosts because they wore anoraks, scarves and gloves. The hosts were walking on stilts or juggling fire. The first sight Emily had was of a giant, glowing, pink papier-mâché or fibreglass painted head floating about five feet above the top of the privet hedge that surrounded the property. Like most people who live in London, Emily didn't know her neighbours very well, though she knew most by sight and some by name usually because she'd had to take in parcels or bouquets of flowers when they were out. She recognised Dr Muriel walking through the gates just ahead of her, pulling a small two-wheeled shopping trolley with one hand and tapping at the pavement for support every three or four paces or so with an elegant silver-topped cane in the other. Dr Muriel was a hearty, squarish woman the colour of concrete, she lived in one of the red-brick Edwardian houses opposite Emily's flat. Emily had taken in mail-order deliveries of large parcels of nutritious bird seed from the RSPB for Dr Muriel. Now, as she followed her, she imagined Dr Muriel standing very still in her garden with her cupped hands outstretched. Wild birds perched along her sleeves as if she were a washing line, waiting their turn to peck at the sunflower seeds and other delicious avian titbits while their benefactor cheeped and chirruped to them in a language they seemed to understand. Though it would have been a sight to behold, Emily had never seen anything like this happen. She only imagined it. To her left, as Emily walked into the garden where the bonfire party was being held, she saw a monkey puzzle tree strung with coloured light bulbs as dangerous with its sharp prickles and damp electric wires as a cheaply made, faulty, imported artificial Christmas tree. Next to the tree stood a tall, thin woman with curly hair who was another neighbour of Emily. Emily knew her name was Victoria, and she had three male children who were fond of skateboarding. Victoria was preoccupied with chasing a cube of potato salad across a cream-coloured cardboard plate with a fragile-looking white plastic fork. She didn't look up when Emily passed. One of her duffel-coated children stared out at Emily through a wolf mask while bending his knees and sliding his back up and down against his mother's trouser leg, like a donkey relieving an itch on a fence post. Without taking her eye off her meal, his mother bent and murmured something to him, and he stood still and looked up at her and away from Emily. It was a very cold dark night and the air was damp but there was no rain. The conditions were perfect for the party and the garden was filled with people determined to enjoy themselves clumped near the fire bowls and coloured lanterns for warmth and light and ooing and aahing at the stilt walkers and jugglers. They swapped spurious conflicting pieces of information. The stilt walkers were Polish The jugglers were Scottish, the artist who had made the giant head was Spanish, it was a squat party, it was illegal, it was sanctioned by the local council, it was bankrolled by Sir Paul McCartney. Most of it was nonsense, but some of it was true. A man and a woman Emily didn't know stood at the bottom of the three or four stone steps that led up to the door to the house. "'sipping at cinnamon-scented mulled wine from white plastic cups and smoking cigarettes. "'They smiled at Emily as she passed, "'and she saw that the woman's lips were painted red "'and her teeth had been stained the colour of blackberries by the wine. "'Her brown fuzzy hair had been teased into an unflattering triangular shape, "'and she seemed to have pencilled her eyebrows in without looking in a mirror. "'If you want the baby,' said the man to the woman, "'have the baby.' Or sell it, I don't care. The woman shrieked. She seemed deranged. The man dropped his cigarette and grabbed at her. Emily stopped on the top step and turned, ready to intervene. But the woman let him put his arms around her. She smooched with him, rubbing the fox fur collar of her long black coat against his shoulder. And the two of them turned slowly in each other's arms like lovers dancing on a music box, as she began to sing the chorus of La Vie en Rose. People standing nearby recognised the tune and came a little closer to listen. Some of them clapped. Emily moved on. Inside the house was a grand hall so large that it was served by two staircases. The plaster on the walls was cracked and there was a slight smell of mildew. But the flagstones on the floor had been scrubbed and the place had been fixed up with chandeliers hanging from the ceiling and original artwork on the walls. A man in a cape and a top hat swooshed past. He was young, no more than 21 or 22, and he was wearing a false moustache and he had rouged his cheeks. He tipped his hat at Emily. Madame, he said. Emily smiled weakly a heavy wooden door opened on the opposite side of the hall and as two laughing teenage girls emerged emily saw that they had come from the kitchen and she headed there to leave her offerings the kitchen was bare pretty much except for a large porcelain sink and a cream-coloured fridge that was taller than emily and twice as wide and two trestle tables one stacked with bottles of booze and a large pot of mulled wine that was being heated over a small portable gas burner and a bowl of punch. The other was laden with dishes prepared by the hosts or brought by the guests, macaroni cheese, mince pies, quiches, pasta salads, rice salads, tuna salads, potato salads, baked potatoes, garlic bread and an assortment of minced pork, beef and lamb products, in the form of sausages, scotch eggs, a cottage pie, and chilli con carne. Everything was on the spectrum from brown to cream, and the overall effect was of a sepia-toned display that had been put together by someone nostalgic for a time before Britons had learned to cook, but after they had learned to shop at supermarkets. "'What a spread!' said Dr Muriel, with the jovial sincerity of a popular visitor to an old people's home or primary school." Wouldn't it be fun to try and guess who has brought what? Emily edged her cheesy potato bake onto the table next to the scotch eggs, thinking it wouldn't be fun at all. Her dish had already congealed slightly, and the top was glazing over, as if she'd persisted in telling it a very dull story on the way here. From her trolley, Dr Muriel brought a bottle of port, two dozen homemade mince pies, and a large round Stilton cheese. "'Low self-esteem is often caused by low blood sugar,' she said, "'filling a plate with a selection from the buffet. "'It's a good idea to eat well at parties.' "'A young woman in a belted mac approached Emily. "'She was very, very thin, with dark, short hair held back with a clip, "'with tiny glass beads on it "'that nobody could possibly have mistaken for real jewels. "'She came so close that Emily could smell the wardrobe smell on her coat.' The flesh under her cheekbones was scooped out, like a jack-o'-lantern, but prettier. My name is Elise. Can you help me? I need to get a message to our friend, but I'm being watched. I have information that is vital, vital to the success of our joint endeavour. Emily looked round uncertainly, and then she looked back at Elise, who was staring at her intently. "'What's the message, my dear?' asked Dr Muriel. "'The message is in the suitcase. "'And who's it for? Who's our friend?' Elise looked surprised at the question. "'Why, the gentleman who is waiting for the suitcase, of course.' She turned to leave. Then she stopped and held up one finger. She looked at Emily. "'Could you help me get the suitcase to the gentleman?' she asked. Emily said, well, I... She shrugged. Then Elise shrugged. She might have been mimicking or mocking Emily. Maybe later, Emily said. Elise gave her a look of such desperate longing that Emily felt embarrassed. Elise turned and walked away, moving slowly, with dignity. Like someone who's used to being watched. Dr Muriel looked for somewhere to put her plate down so that she could applaud as Elise walked away. There was no space on the trestle table, so she held on to the plate and thumped the top of her left hand with her right, as if she were trying to knock clods of mud from her Wellington boots. Marvellous, she said, marvellous, bravo! At the door that led to the Grand Hall, Elise turned and inclined her head. Then she was gone. Even though it had only been make-believe, Emily still felt involved. Guilty. More guests came into the kitchen, some were even wearing fancy dress. But even when their costumes were hired, the guests were easily distinguishable from their hosts. Their hosts moved purposefully through the rooms, like characters pouring to the party from an alternate world, obeying rules and impulses and reacting to events and objects that only they could interpret whereas their guests were just ordinary people who were standing about, enjoying the various entertainments, but contributing nothing. It was somehow a metaphor for life, but Emily couldn't see what she was supposed to learn from it. She was too old to run away and join a theatre troupe. Anyway, for now, something else was bothering her. I never know what to say, or even if we're supposed to join in. Nerve-wracking, isn't it? said Dr Muriel. She didn't look nervous at all, she looked as if she could stand and face a charging rhino. Emily left her and went to explore. The dilapidated house had been done up quickly and efficiently at very low cost, furnished with furniture from skips and material salvaged from jumble sales and decorated with original artworks created by members of the collective who had occupied the place. Her favorite so far was an oxidized metal sculpture of the skeleton of a horse that seemed to be galloping along one of the balconies where it was visible from the ground floor. Nails and staples were visible in the furnishings if you looked close up, but from a distance the effects were grand, theatrical, striking. Emily was impressed with the transformation. She'd often walk past on her way to work, head down, not looking forward to her day or head down, hurrying to get home again to Jessie. If she'd thought about the house at all, she had only thought that it was a shame that the place was slowly rotting away. Now she could see that something wonderful had been achieved with a determination and an entrepreneurial spirit. Was it because they were risk-takers? Was it because they had gathered here from all over the world, a group of culturally diverse people pooling their resources harmoniously to achieve success? Emily climbed the stairs to have a look around on the first floor. From what she'd observed at the party so far, most of her hosts were engaged in dangerous activities, walking on stilts, juggling with fire, of the kind that she had been warned against as a child. Had they never been warned? Was she seeing the product of neglectful childhoods? Or was she witnessing a collective rebellion? Whichever it was, she was astounded by the results. Even as Emily was pondering this, a young woman came running up behind her in a corridor with not just one, but a dozen knives in her hand. Emily stood very still, a deer in a forest. But the woman ran past. She was a slim woman, young enough to be called a girl still, with dyed blonde hair. She was wearing a blue-grey, spangled circus-style costume that was rather tatty close-up. "'stained under the armpits, slightly frayed at the groin, "'and with loose threads where sequins were missing. "'The knives she was carrying had short, stubby blades and ornate handles. "'Probably they'd be better described as daggers rather than knives. "'The girl ran full tilt into one of the rooms further along the corridor. "'Emily followed, curious. "'Perhaps there was to be another entertainment.' Emily opened the door and peeped in. The room had been done out like a frou-frou boudoir with swathes of pink velvet draped above a very large bed, gilt mirrors on the walls, and a fancy white and gilt dressing table with a very large hole smashed in the side, as if someone had kicked it. That was the only clue that it might have been rescued from a skip, though of course it could have been damaged recently in an argument. The gilt mirrors were spotted and cloudy, and their frames were chipped, but at a glance, the decorative effect was decadent and appealing. The girl with the knives lay on the bed. The knives were in a box next to her. She looked thunderously angry, registering emotions of the sort of intensity that might easily have resulted in a piece of furniture being kicked. Another blonde girl in a slightly less tatty blue grey costume sat on a pink velvet upholstered chair in front of the dressing table. She touched up her makeup, leaning in toward the gilt mirror propped above it, flicking at her lashes with mascara, her lipsticked mouth a pornographic O. Emily noticed that there were surprisingly few things on the dressing table just a hairbrush, a jar of foundation. A big pink pot of blusher with a long handled brush to apply it, and an uncapped red lipstick in a gorgeously old fashioned gold casing. At first sight, because of their matching costumes, hair colour, and makeup, the two girls looked almost identical. But as Emily looked from one to the other, she began to see differences. This one had higher cheekbones, that one had fuller lips, and so on. It was disconcerting because the Dressing room mirror was angled so that Emily could see into it from the doorway. The result was that Emily could see three near identical faces, though there were only two sisters in the room. As Emily was gawping at the sisters, the door to the ensuite bathroom opened to the boastful sound of the toilet flushing, and Emily's Japanese neighbour Midori stepped into the bedroom. The flushing continued loudly, it sounded like applause. Midori certainly deserved it. She was wearing white PVC hot pants, long white clumpy boots, white eyeshadow, pale pink lipstick. She came towards Emily with a smile, shaking her still damp hands as if she hadn't been able to find the guest towel. Even if she'd improvised by wiping her hands on her clothes, as Emily might have done, there would have been no point. She was wearing nothing absorbent. The sisters looked up at Midori, apparently unaware that she'd been using the facilities, and then they looked at Emily. They didn't seem pleased to see either of them. Zizi, said the girl with the knives to her sister. Zizi got up from the dressing table. As Midori stepped out of the bedroom past where where Emily stood gawking in the doorway, Zizi shut the door in Emily's face. It seemed unnecessarily rude, but then again, it could have been part of a performance. (laughs) said Emily to Midori, by way of acknowledging that this place was exciting, but also really rather unsettling. Midori said, Emily, right? Yeah, we live in the same street. I seen you with your dog. Very old. She died. Oh, I'm sorry, Emily. That's okay. You look nice, Midori. I wish I'd dressed up a bit. I'm DJ. I'm playing tonight. Only neighbour involved in the party. Very exciting. She twisted her hands and linked her fingers together and then she moved her hands up and down a few times as if attempting a handshake of self-congratulation. Hey, said Emily, that's great, Midori. I got a DJ stage name, Hanabi. Japanese name. You know what it's mean? Emily obviously didn't look like much of a linguist because Midori didn't wait for her to reply before supplying the answer. Fireworks. The words say fire flowers. That's lovely. I'm on in a half hour, I'm going to the kitchen to have a bite to eat. You want to come? Yeah, why not? Food's always comforting at a party. The old sisters upset you, Emily? Very rude. No, it's fine. So, Emily went down to the kitchen with Midori to have a bit of food. The kitchen was crowded this time, with people lining up to put food on their plates. Emily cheered up a bit, and then she saw that her cheesy potato bake hadn't gone down well. It was rather grey and congealed, and she overheard one of the revellers being rude about it. She recognised him as one of the Australian lads who lived on her street. "'What do you make of that, Jake?' he said to his friend. "'It's proof of life on the moon,' said Jake. "'It is made of cheese.' "'and grey rocks, and some scientist is going to be sorry "'his wife has raided his lab "'and brought a sample of his work to the party "'instead of the shepherd's pie she was supposed to bring. "'Oh, hey, shepherd's pie. "'I wouldn't mind some of that. "'Can you see any? "'Well, hey, Chris, great party!' "'This last remark was addressed to a fair-haired Englishman "'who was eating a green apple. "'He nodded. "'Midori,' said Chris, You're all set up outside whenever you're ready. You okay for food? The pyramid of food teetering on Midori's plate suggested this was so. You want a drink? You want a glass of punch? He ladled some punch into a paper cup and handed it over. How about your friend? Emily, said Emily. No, I don't think so, thank you. Chris is in charge, said Midori. Party's his idea. So you sent the invitation, said Emily. Chris said, not personally. I didn't expect you to be English. I thought everyone in this collective was Spanish or Polish or... Yeah, <laughs> all except me. So you all chipped in to buy this place. We don't go in for ownership. We've got a network around the world to help us identify abandoned spaces. We identify, occupy, beautify. We fix it up and make one little corner of the world a prettier place. And then we move on. We've been on the road for a long time. And now you've come home, said Emily. Home, said Chris. Home is where the art is, Emily. He had an intense way of looking at her, as though he was assessing her worth and had found her wanting. She didn't like his slightly sardonic way of talking. She found she disliked him. But what was it she objected to? His intensity or his flippancy? Or just the way he looked at her? She hated to admit that there was nothing intellectual about her reaction. She was probably just out of sorts after overhearing Jake's comments about the food she'd made. Emily wanted to get away from the kitchen, but Chris was still here, hemming her in by the buffet. Are you enjoying the party? he asked. I am. I never know what's going to happen next. Uh, it's all great. Just don't miss the knife throwing. Is that the sisters, Zizi and Zizi and Jarjar? They're awesome. Yeah, they didn't think much of Midori using their bathroom while they were trying to get ready. Did she? Where was that? Upstairs. I tried to get a look in case it was a performance like Elise. Oh, poor Elise. I wonder if she's got anyone to take her suitcase to that man yet. She asked me. Was I supposed to say yes? (laughs) Yes. So which one is it who throws the knives? Is it Zizi or Zsa Zsa You'll have to see it to find out, Chris said. He looked amused. There's no audience participation, is there? They both looked in such a mardy mood just now. I don't think I'd want to take my chances. Chris smirked the expression made his nose look very long and straight and his mouth looked strangely sexy Emily thought she detected in Chris's accent and demeanor a sense of entitlement that only comes from rich well-educated people the sort who can afford to go swanning off around the world with a troupe of performers in the name of art if you were really so well brought up Emily thought you might ask do you mind if I smirk before puffing your condescension all over me But then she remembered her dog had just died, and probably that was making her thin-skinned and emotional. And she was at a party, and she seemed to have forgotten how to enjoy herself, and she'd better start. And then a tall, dark-haired man edged in next to her at the buffet table and took charge of things, as though he'd heard her silent command to get the party started. Joe, said Chris, nodding in acknowledgement. Was there a hint of antagonism in the way he said Joe's name? Okay, man, Joe said. He was strong-looking, as though he worked outdoors. And he spoke with a slight accent. He turned away from Chris. And as he turned away, he was half a head taller than Emily, so she had to tilt up to get a good look at his handsome face. She saw something she hadn't been expecting to see in response to Chris's antagonism. Not bitterness or aggression or anger or indifference. No, for a moment she thought Joe looked sad. you got to eat something, Joe said, noticing Emily's empty plate. He put a huge spoonful of her cheesy potato bake on her plate and then he put an equally good portion of it on his. It's good, he said, as if she needed persuading. We make it like this at home in Hungary. You have the meat and you have the potatoes. I don't understand these layers of things. He indicated the dish of lasagna and the dish of cottage pie. Like, they want to hide the meat in there because it's shy? He looked towards Midori, but her plate was full. She stood and scoffed her food right there in the kitchen in a ladylike but extremely efficient manner, plate to her chin, fork to mouth, fork to mouth, fork to mouth. With her crazy white gear and her repetitive movements, she could have been a next-generation robot, demonstrating hoovering techniques. Ah, better, she said when she was almost done. She put her plate down and used both hands to snap the heads off two prawns that remained on it, then sucked the meat out of the prehistoric little bodies like a very genteel predator. You want some punch? Joe said to Midori. He put a paper cup down on the table next to her got some she took an individually wrapped alcohol soaked hand wipe from the pink plastic bag that was slung over her shoulder the cartoon cats depicted on it bouncing at her hip and she ripped open the packaging and carefully wiped all eight fingers and two thumbs on her hands like a proud mamma. she swigged the the cup of punch down in two draughts and then she went out into the garden where her dj booth had been set up Joe loaded up his plate with meatballs and salad, and every time he took something for himself, he first offered a serving of it to Emily. He took two paper napkins and two plastic forks from the table. He said, You want to go outside and eat? Emily did. She'd formed rather a good first impression of Joe, with his strong muscular arms and his air of slight sadness. Added to that, he'd been nice about the food she'd brought. Emily and Joe went and sat, sat together on two plastic chairs in the enormous garden. It was much bigger than any of the other gardens Emily had glimpsed from her street. It was much bigger than her garden, which she tended lovingly in spite of the difficulties of maintaining a lush green lawn that arose from allowing an elderly golden retriever to piddle on the grass a couple of times a day. The party house had once been a very grand house and the size of the garden where Emily and Joe were now sitting was testament to that. There was a small orchard off to the west of the garden with apple, cherry and pear trees in it. Nearer the house were neglected flower beds with overgrown shrubs and bushes and midway between house and orchard on what had once probably been a very fine lawn there was a towering bonfire that had not yet been lit. It was stacked with sawn up pieces of wood branches and kindling. Emily surmised that it had been built by a man because in her experience men were good at making fires. Goodness knows she was self-sufficient but building a decent fire in the grate in the decorative but functional tiled fireplace in her flat was the one thing she never quite managed to do to her own satisfaction. Close to the house was Midori and her DJ booth, a temporary structure decorated with fairy lights and bearing a hand-painted sign with DJ Hannah B on it. Closer still was a barbecue with a man in a chef's hat, an apron and checked trousers. He was carving roast pork from a pig on a spit and serving it to a very long line of hungry customers. Emily wondered if there was any difference ethically between eating a dog and eating a pig if so then whether or not it was acceptable to eat a two-year-old child was another question that ought to be considered as part of the mix she had read that dogs were just as intelligent as toddlers though she would read that pigs were cleverer still Emily didn't think she ought to share with Joe her thoughts about pigs, dogs and toddlers. She didn't want to allude to her assumption that he must be good at lighting fires as he was a man. She didn't want to sit there and imagine him chopping up pieces of wood with an axe in his hands. She didn't want to sound as though she was being suggestive or simpering at him. Did you build that bonfire? she asked Joe. I helped, he said. She pressed on, trying to find a bonfire-related question that didn't involve a mention of chopping, smoking, lighting fires. She came up with, I hope you checked for hedgehogs this morning, if it's been there overnight. You know they crawl in there and sleep if it looks cosy. Hedgehogs, horses, people. We checked it, don't worry. When they light it, there's going to be a big parade. We're going to put an effigy on the fire and burn it. You're going to stay and see it? Oh, yes, and the knife throwing—I want to see that too. Yeah, why? I heard it was good. Zizi and Zizi and Shajah crazy girls. Yeah, it's one hell of an act. What do you do here, Joe? Joseph, you can call me Joe. Do you have an act, Joe? No, Emily. It's Emily, right? She was eating a a meatball, but she bobbed her chin up and down, acknowledging that he was right. He said, I don't put on a mask. I make some of the props, the artworks. Did you see the metal horse upstairs? I made that. I used to be a blacksmith in my hometown. So now I do this. Where's home? Hungary. What about you Emily? You from here? Yeah, I'm I'm one of the neighbours, one of the guests. I live in this street. I'm not from London though. But this is a city of immigrants, isn't it? Nearly everyone's moved here from somewhere, including me. Though I only moved from the countryside. No need for a passport. You okay, Emily? Do I look miserable? My dog just died. Oh, that, that's a shame. Well, everyone who has a dog, it dies eventually. I just need to get over it. That's okay. It just happened, didn't it? Yes, and I've been moping about the house the last few days, and I realised I'd been operating for years as one half of a human-dog duo. I need to get used to life without the furrier half. The separation is so real, I can feel it. If you had a diagram of the human body here now, I could point to the place where the wound would run from just beneath my armpit to just above my thigh, as if there was some kind of physical manifestation of the separation from Jesse. I don't have a diagram of the human body, Emily. Well, I don't have any outward scar. Oh, okay. I wondered if you were going to ask me whether I wanted to see it. Emily thought, are you flirting with me, Joe?" She blushed. She looked at his neck where his shirt was open, the only naked part of him that she could see. He had a gold chain around his neck and some dark hairs on the region below the collarbone where his neck officially became his chest. She wondered if he had any scars that he would like her to see. Joe said, I've got to get some props ready for the girls. The knife-throwing girls? Uh Uh-huh. He grinned. He gripped her bicep as if they were two men who just shared a pint, and he said, You take care of yourself, Emily. He walked off towards the house, leaving behind his plate and plastic cutlery. You're not perfect then, thought Emily. She picked up his plate and hers, so she could tidy up, and she looked at the grease on her hands and under her fingernails. She would have been grateful for one of those individually wrapped alcohol soaked hand towels just just then and thinking of it made her look towards Midori, which is how she happened to be watching her friend just when it happened. There were three or four explosions from a neighbouring garden as firework rockets went off and Emily jumped and thought about gunshots and then Midori went down the Japanese girl dropped as if someone had taken hold of the edges of her and was trying to shake her down like a duvet and hadn't held on tightly enough to the corners. It didn't look as though it was something she was in control of personally. It didn't look as though she was ducking or dancing or reaching for a record from the case at her feet. It looked as though she'd been shot. Oh my God, thought Emily. She's down. Okay, that's the end of the first episode please come back for the for the next installment bye bye